So welcome everybody. Welcome to our Governance Evaluator Insights webinar series. Today we're talking about demystifying data-driven decisions. Are you proactive or reactive about your governance risks? So when you're at the boardroom table, there's three kinds of risks that in general we need data about that enable us to make great decisions. And that data tends to be about the board itself, it's corporate governance and sector-specific information that it needs so we can make decisions about have we got all those things in place. It's also data about individual directors, have we got the right skills and all those sorts of things. And the other piece of data that we need is about those external things or the organisational internal data as well. Today, we're going to mostly focus on the first couple of types of data, which is about the board itself and about our directors. So I'd like to welcome you all and I'd like to introduce you to our expert panellists today. We work very closely with and tend to learn a lot from our customers and they help us build the information and the data that we need. And you'll see in a minute what I mean when I introduce you to one of our most recent clients and data experts, Dr. Tegan Smith. Tegan is armed with a PhD in biotechnology and has several years experience working as a scientist at Harvard Medical School and in biopharma in Silicon Valley. She's now the CEO of OPAL, and OPAL is an organisation that's harnessing the power of data to improve human health, which is pretty amazing. And that's achieved through a collaboration with 110 specialist rheumatologists and aggregating that data from over 200,000 patients. So we really welcome you today, Tegan, and we look forward to hearing from you. Our other panellists actually members of our Governance Evaluator team because we realise that at the Governance Evaluator we don't just partner with governance experts and consultants but we've realised the other half of how we bring to you what you need to build your capabilities is to actually have data specialists as well. And when I introduce you to them you'll be um, amazed like me at what passion and what insights they bring to us to help us understand how we need to use data to help us with our managing our governance risk in the future. So first of all, I'd like to introduce you to Adrian Wagner. Adrian's our IT operations manager. He has a very long history in um, project management and software development, but importantly, 18 years of experience in data analytics. And Adrian has a belief that he wants to influence organisational change, but he believes that starts at the top. And that's why he wants to bring his passion and his skills to the world of governance. I also want to introduce you to Ashley Blackburn, who is our data analyst. And Ashley, interestingly, was on her way to do medicine. And then she 
was introduced to data analytics and there was no going back. Three years on, she's now taking her passion for data and it's visualisation and she's using this to help us be able to understand our governance better. So a big welcome to all of our panellists today. And let's get on with our discussion. So the first area that we'd like to talk about is why is data now regarded as the crucial other piece for peace of mind? And I'd like to start with you, Adrian. And I'd like to ask you, what's happening? What, why is data now almost the other half of getting things right? Thanks, Faye. I, I think I need to go back a step here and start with this sort of give a bit of context, peace of mind. I think in our own nature, we're, we're very reactive. We always react to whatever circumstances come up. And it's a very generalised statement. We rely a lot on our intuition. We rely on our experience and our knowledge to react to our circumstances. So you and I have had heaps of conversations and we've, we've talked with advisors and industry leaders about approaches to governance and risk. What's come up quite a few times is this whack-a-mole effect, this approach of hitting an, hitting an issue on the head when it pops up. And we address issues as they occur. So I think what sits behind this is we don't know what we don't know. We end up in these instances of being unaware of circumstances that are going to pop up and it catches us off guard. There's a natural subconscious anxiety to that. And I think that that's what creates a bit of a reduced peace of mind. You flip that on its head and you start talking about a proactive response to things. And I always like to talk about reacting to things, not reactively, but responsively. So I think data becomes a really big foundation to that planning of that proactive response. It's an informed proactive response. When you start looking at that big picture, there's a ton of truth to it. And there's no hiding from it. Uh, and that sort of big data picture really can reinforce things for you. When it's visualised well, it, it just becomes simple to understand. And now, you know, suddenly this opens the world for you and you've got this ability to use not only this beautifully visualised data to help you make decisions, you can then bring your experience and personal wisdom into it. And, you know, and that increases that peace of mind because of this proactive response you take to things. A, a, a bit of a strange segue to it. Earlier this year, I, I crashed my car. Now, but, <laughs> Yeah, so, and, and stick with me here. It's, um, <laughs> it was an older car and, you know, obviously the, the car in front of the car in front of me broke. I, I didn't see it. I, I slammed into the van in front of me, um, broke my car off terribly. But I, I've since bought a new car and this new car, obviously the evolution in motor vehicles, they've, they've taken this stance of let's give the driver more data. My car collects all of this sensor data about, everything around it so it knows what the traffic is doing around it. and it's constantly telling you those pieces of information it's monitoring me it's it's looking trying to determine how fatigued am i as a driver am i paying attention am i holding the steering wheel it's taking this really big evolutionary step into providing me more data so i can be a more responsive driver now i really hope that doesn't scare everyone off the roads thinking that i'm around but <laughs> this, this kind of step forward in the way we're using data in our everyday lives is an awesome step. And I think that gives us a bigger peace of mind. Thank you. And then, and I have peace of mind driving with you now as well. 
Well, I hope everyone does. <laughs> so, Ash, tell us from your perspective, why is the new piece in peace of mind? Thanks, Lee. I really believe that data can tell a story that it's not just a bunch of numbers on a page, but when it's given the right voice through visualization, it can be an immensely powerful tool in decision-making. I think as well that our global appetite at the moment for data and data-driven decisions, thanks to COVID-19, is really high at the moment. Everyday people are getting a chance to see exactly how data can inform our decisions and it leading to meaningful outcomes. For example, this beautiful visualization that you've got up on screen here. It's incredible that people have put together this world map with live data. I mean, you know, it was only updated uh, a few minutes ago, which is crazy to think that we're getting all of this, this straight out. And it can give people a real peace of mind that while the virus is being tracked, even if the data isn't the data that you want at least you've got it there and you know what's happening and you know what's going on i mean just imagine all of this data as just one big spreadsheet i don't think it would nearly be able to tell you quite the same story as what the map does i think that's applicable for uh, a lot of things as well it's when data's had that mode of transportation picked really carefully to tell this amazing story, it's much more effective. And as the, the little comic says, uh, it's got to be better than interpretive dance. <laughs> oh, that's terrific. I love that idea of data actually telling a story. So, Tegan, let's talk about your world and where you come from. Why is data now regarded, in your view, as the other piece for peace of mind? Yeah, thanks, Kate, for having me speak today. I actually have a story about this. So I was a scientist for many years. I was doing a PhD in biotechnology and I was trying to understand what causes DNA damage in sperm and then the consequences of this DNA damage in sperm, like infertility, uh, miscarriage, birth defects, childhood cancers, uh, those sorts of things. Uh, and for decades, it was assumed that sperm couldn't repair their own DNA because of the way that they're all packaged up. And no one had ever found the machinery that repairs DNA in DNA damage in sperm. So all of our research was built on this assumption that the egg repaired the DNA damage from sperm after fertilization. So there's your science lesson for the day, but I was doing various uh, experiments to try to damage sperm in different ways. And the data that I was collecting kept pointing me in the direction of sperm attempting to repair their own DNA, which of course we all knew was absolutely impossible. But I decided to follow my nose and explore it a little bit further. But keep in mind, I was a young pup. I was just starting out as a scientist. I was in my early 20s. And I was, what I was suggesting was pretty outrageous. So I actually worked around the clock for 21 days straight in a very clandestine manner. No one knew what I was up to, to gather some more data to either support this idea or not, in which case, because no one knew what I was doing, my reputation of not being a total idiot would remain intact. <laughs> <laughs> but to my total surprise, all the data came back pointing towards DNA repair and every single experiment worked perfectly, which is actually really uncommon in basic science research. 
we get negative results all the time, but it's not a bad thing in science. In fact, the negative data is just as important as the positive data in refining the hypothesis and sending you in the right direction to make a big discovery. So anyway, after 21 days, I went into the next lab meeting and I put a huge wad of paper down on the table in front of about 15 scientists, including the top reproductive scientists in the world at the time. And I said, I think sperm can repair their DNA. And everyone looked at me a little bit concerned for my well-being. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but I walked them through what I had done and how I collected the data and then what the data was showing. And they all agreed that I was onto something. It was undeniable. Um, so we put together a team of experts to help find the missing piece of the puzzle, which was the machinery that we thought was actually doing the repair. And uh, we found it. We actually found it. So uh, <laughs> That's incredible. That really is. So what were some of the things that you actually learned from that? So we, we prepared a paper. We submitted it to a really prestigious journal, the Journal of Cell Science, and they published it straight away. But we've all watched sci-fi movies where a scientist makes a big discovery and it's so dramatic and exciting and everyone's beautiful and, and all of that. But I can assure you that it wasn't all that glamorous. I woke up <laughs> in a panic at 3am, the sheer terror that I got it wrong so many times. And by this point, I was in my dream job. I was a scientist at Harvard. And I had a lot to lose. I thought my career would be ruined if I was found out. But fortunately, I was able to self-soothe with the knowledge that I truly listened intently to what the data that I meticulously collected was telling me. I didn't cherry pick any data to suit a story that I wanted to tell, didn't hide the data that would upset the status quo and the people in my field who had built whole careers based on a different assumption. Uh, and when my ego finally deflated and I realised that I wasn't actually smarter than all the people who came before me who couldn't find DNA repair. I just had new technology available to me. I could collect new data and I really welcomed this information with an open mind. And seven years later, my career is not ruined. My paper wasn't retracted. It's been read thousands of times and hundreds of scientists have built on my discovery. So a good outcome. But if I could sum up what I learned from this experience, approach data with an open mind and truly pay attention. Don't cherry pick data. It suits the story you want to tell. Don't be afraid to change your story based on new data. In fact, normalise change based on new information collected with new technology. And also make sure your data is captured ethically, particularly in science. If you have data that you didn't have ethics approval or whatever to collect, it will come back around and bite you. You will be found out. So I would apply that to every field. That's good. So for you, serious peace of mind. Just by actually believing the data. That's fantastic. I love it. Thank you. So the next question that I want to ask you all on the panel is how does data help us to achieve the balance between intuitive and factual decision-making? So intuitive is, and I think I'm going to ask Tegan to explain intuitive in a minute, but intuitive is pretty much how we've done a lot of it up until now. But how does that combined with data really take things to another level. So Tegan, talk to me about intuition and what that actually means. 
Yeah, we tend to think of it, intuition as this magical experience that just comes from somewhere else, but it's actually our brains frantically crunching data in our memory bank and trying to recognize patterns in what we've experienced in the past and matching them with what we're facing in the current moment and then making a prediction on what's going to happen next. And the reason that it feels like it comes from someplace else is because it happens completely subconsciously in our subconscious mind. It's not rational. It's not a conscious thought process at all. And while intuition is an extraordinary for keeping us safe and predicting danger or deception, which is incredibly important when dealing with people, both professionally and personally, our conscious mind also holds our habits and our limiting beliefs and our biases as well. It's memorized our comfort zones. It knows how, how and, and it works really hard to keep us there. But it's also our subconscious mind that stores a few ugly things. So things like racism, sexism, ageism, biases towards people in general who might be different to what was demonstrated to us as normal. And even the most emotionally intelligent people are afflicted by this. It's part of being human. That's really interesting. That, that's really interesting. I didn't actually ever understand that before. So intuition, even though it's great and it helps us work themes and things out it's actually where a lot of our biases and things sit as well mm. that 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 particularly is important at a boardroom table to be able to understand that so tegan i guess what are people saying about this at the moment you know what what are people saying about the combination of these two things for important decision making yeah, so uh, there's actually a really interesting guy who I greatly admire. His name's Chama Palahapatiya. He's worth looking up. He was a child refugee from Sri Lanka and his family settled in Canada and they had to start completely from scratch. They had nothing. They were exceptionally poor. But he landed a job at Facebook uh, when it was first starting out and his job was to grow the mm. user base, uh, which he obviously did a great job of and he walked away a very wealthy man and he's now actually an investor. But he's been very vocal about the discrimination that's faced by startup founders. And he authored an editorial a few years ago and he highlighted that 92% of investment fund managers are male and nearly 80% of them are white. And he highlighted the blind spots that are created by having all the wealth distributed by the same people living the same lives, having the same experiences and largely making the same decisions and how this is limiting our ability to innovate and enact change, especially around inequality. And interestingly, I've heard pretty similar things firsthand, actually. I was involved with a startup accelerator program and I was told that, yeah, investors invest in your product market fit, how much money you can make them and how quickly. But I was also told that ultimately the decision comes down to who the founder of a CEO is and that's who they're investing in. And I was also told that male CEOs could be absolute assholes and get away with it, excuse my language, but <laughs> female CEOs need to come across as warm and capable, but just a little bit vulnerable in order to be taken seriously. And I think that comes down to the power thing as well. So Chomak has come up with a way to find founders to invest in using data to try and remove some of these subconscious biases that prevents people that stray from that white male Ivy League ideal from being funded. And if we bring this back around to governance, when we take all this into consideration, I believe that to achieve true diversity in leadership, we need to 
reduce our reliance on recruiting based on intuition, which can perpetuate our subconscious bias. And it has a huge impact on the opportunities that are afforded to women, people of colour, people with a disability, all the people that we don't regularly see sitting around the boardroom table and instead allow data to come into it a little bit more to help us make these decisions and take the emotion out of it and help us make what is uncomfortable naturally to us a bit more comfortable. Fantastic. That's really good. And so continuing on on that, Ash, from your perspective, what does these two things mean together for you? Yeah, absolutely. So I sort of uh, agree with where Tegan's coming from, speaking from my own experiences as well. I'm usually the youngest woman in the room, so I find that there's a lot more hoops to jump through to get my ideas accepted and actually convince people that I belong in the room and in the discussion, thanks to my age and gender. Uh, But this is what I love about data. It creates sort of this more even playing field if the data's telling you something, no matter what your personal biases might be, uh, you, you kind of need to accept it. That being said, though, I think that it's really important to have this fusion between our data and our intuition. Because like it's been said, your intuition is restricted by what you've experienced in your life and that sort of thing. But I don't think we should discount that completely either. I think some of those experiences and knowledge are really important because all too often when we talk about data, especially at a governance level, it's actually talking about people and and individuals and organizations. These data points aren't just data points, they're people as well, which I think is really important to to take into consideration. They've all got backgrounds with different experiences and they've got a story to tell as well that sets them apart. So I think for for me, a really important part in presenting data is actually giving people the tools to understand the story of the data themselves, because it's all very well and good to, you know, have these experts come and put together these great reports and tell you, yep, X, Y, and Z, this is what you need to do. But if they don't know about your story and your organisation and the little nuances that you can't pick up in the data, I think that always is going to be that flaw if the two can't coexist. Mm. I think that's, that's very powerful. And I think following on from Tegan and your point, Tegan, I love that notion of the data actually being used to help dismiss some biases that that's really powerful and um, I agree with you Ash that enabling those two things to be used together is incredibly important because if we didn't have those stories about things it would be a pretty dull conversation wouldn't it and (laughs) a pretty long one (laughs) okay that's really interesting so Adrian from your perspective where does it sit with you and your background about those two things working together, given you've been doing this for 18 years? Well, that's where I think Ash touched on a really important point there. I think it's the awareness and transparency. And I love the word transparency. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's understanding how data comes to you and from all the different sources that you can potentially bring data into yourself and understanding where it's come from, how it was collected, because there is natural born biases in the way that data can be collected. It's saying that data can be unbiased is a real myth. There's always an element of bias. The, the act of observation can actually influence the outcome. So transparency is, I think, 
awareness and transparency applies to not only the way you handle the data given to you, but then the way you actually project that data, what you do with the data in yourself. You know, understanding your goals. Why did we collect this and what are we trying to achieve? And are we prepared to change our thought process if the data we've collected doesn't support our goals? Tegan mentioned that perfectly earlier. You've got to allow this data to talk and face its biases, confront the status quo and make socially inclusive decisions about what it's telling you. I think data-based reports, they, they can allow any topic to be discussed without emotion or personal opinions involved. You can dissociate from that. And it can really change the way you think about things. So you've got to use all the information that's available to you. I love the term avoid cherry picking. You've got to avoid cherry picking and trying to tailor that data to suit your need. You've got to be, have that transparency to understand that this data may not reflect what I want it to, and I've got to accept the fact that I've got to be prepared to change. I think there's an opportunity here for everyone to avoid the mistakes of the past and do things differently. Mm, I think that's, that's a really good point. And actually, people are commenting as you're speaking, and people are saying that they agree that the intuition and data do really go together but also people are saying that there's bias as well in the provision of data in other words not just how we collect it i think this is a really clever point of one of our listeners it's also how it's presented can be particularly financial data can be very susceptible to being presented in a biased way is that right that's the thing we we talk about interpretation and i think interpretation is just a pretty label for bias to some degree Mm, and mm. very easily influence the way the data is in, interpreted. Yes, yes. Um, you know, exactly. Getting to that point, and that's where transparency, and I was listening to the news last night, and a person said 47% of 2,000 people surveyed. Who were the 2,000 people surveyed? Where did they come from? Why did mm. they agree with what you were trying to say? Exactly. Where's the, my awareness and transparency? Why should I take what you're saying on face value? Exactly. No, that's a really good point. So if you think about what we've covered so far, we've covered that the that data is the new piece in peace of mind and there's lots of reasons why. We've also covered don't chuck out the old just for the sake of the new. Let's combine the two things. Let's combine intuition and data to help us make great decisions. But importantly, how can we be sure that we get the right data? And... Tegan, you are the CEO of an amazing organisation that actually lives and breathes data and you use it for the betterment of humans. So talk to us about how do you do this and how does it work? Yeah, so I run an extraordinary company called Opal Rheumatology and rheumatology is the management of chronic autoimmune diseases like rheumatoid arthritis, lupus, and they're incredibly debilitating if they're not managed adequately. But fortunately, we have a lot of new medicines available now to help manage these diseases much better than they were in the past. But there's still so much that we don't know about these medicines and and which ones to use in which order. And patients have these conditions for their lifetime. So how do we manage a lifetime of these conditions in patients. There's still a lot that we don't know. And speaking of, uh, of getting the right data, in Australia, 90% of rheumatology patients are treated out in the community in private practice. They're not treated in big hospitals or the university setting, but in the community. 
So we set up Opal to draw on the wisdom of the crowd and get the data from the front line in the community because that's where the knowledge is. And what's the point in being out in the front line gaining all the knowledge unless you're able to share that? So we now have 110 rheumatologists all around Australia who are managing their patients completely independently. And that's an important part of the wisdom of the crowd. It needs to be a bunch of individuals and then you pull together their collective experiences. So then we extract all that wisdom from a custom-built electronic medical record that we created with our partners at Software for Specialists to capture the data that is most important for the management of these conditions. And then we extract it all and then we do research on it. So we don't just hand over the data to, say, a university professor, assuming that they know more about patients than those who live and breathe this every single day. And our network has 2,700 years of collective experience practicing medicine and over a million individual clinical consultations with 200,000 individual patients. So it's an extraordinarily powerful resource. And we've decentralized research away from relying on academic institutions and instead we've empowered our regular frontline doctors to do the research with the help of expert statisticians and then one of the advantages of this is that knowledge that we learn through doing our own research can then be applied to the very next patient that walks in the room so we're reducing the time that it takes to get new information down to those people on the front line so every patient is essentially benefiting from 2,700 years of collective knowledge every time they come into the room. Ordinary. And Tegan, the, the wisdom of the crowd, and I love this quote. In fact, we've got a few people commenting on this quote and how important this is in relation to boards and sitting at the board. So is that why you chose this quote today? Is this the, is this the connection with governance? Potentially connection with governance, but also just making sure you're getting the right data. Who holds the wisdom? That's the question. And quite often the wisdom is not held by a single expert. It's, yes. uh, I think it was Aristotle made a comment about 2,000 people trying to guess the weight of an ox get it closer than one single expert. They're, they're closer together. That is fantastic. I love that. And this is the thing with, I agree with you entirely that, the skill of not just having a foregone conclusion when you're sitting on a board. It, it's the skill of embracing everybody and also bringing in the data and the information for everyone to discuss. What, a, what an amazing example and what a great lot of work you're doing. It's really incredible. Thank you for sharing that with us. It's really incredible. So Adrian, from your perspective, I know you've got some great examples here of how to get the right data and, and, and using things that some of us know all the time and we have no idea why this is why they're used. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah, look, I think the qualities of the right data is, is a consistency, accuracy, and that the data is validated. You've got to prove that it's actually right before you start making big decisions based on it. And you've got to understand what you need, the correlation between all of your data. You know, is it the right data for us and what's its context? I keep coming back to context. But my favourite go-to words, context, transparency, awareness. So I think just to quickly touch on an actual the crowdsourcing and build on the crowdsourcing idea, I think everyone would have seen this little security pop, pop up over the last few years. It's 
an incredibly annoying thing and it, it takes 10 seconds to fill it out. Everyone's always bashed up against it. What you don't know is the story behind this little security feature and what it actually does. This was developed by a man named Louis Farnan out of Guatemala. He developed the actual idea of a security check capture initially to prevent automated form completion processes. So those little, they call them bots, where they go out and complete a form, sign up to Facebook, sign up to Yahoo. So he created this human Turing test, this validation of actual people to prove that a person's a human. Annoying as all hell. <laughs> but where, where it evolved to is he then had this idea, it's okay, well, I've got all these people doing this little test, so what could I do with this? Now, what you might not understand that sitting behind this, at that time around 2007, the world was going hell for leather trying to digitise everything. There was these huge projects in digitising books, digitising newspapers. The optical character recognition programs aren't anywhere near as good as they are today. So they'd stumble. They'd stumble on words and they'd throw out all of these little words they couldn't deal with. So what Lewis realised that if he stuck them into this kind of security test, that he could have people complete this for him. So that little idea there on screen tries to modern day. One of those words is the actual security test. The other word is the word that they're trying to decipher. So they effectively had people deciphering these digitally based words that were difficult for computers to actually read themselves. And they would then challenge multiple people with the same words so that effectively they'd validate the data. So if a number of people spelt the word the same way, they would validate that and say that this is the correct spelling of this word. That's incredible. And it's, it's amazing what that achieved. 440 million words deciphered in the first year. They, they basically digitised 130 years of the New York Times doing a, a whole year in a week. I, I did read the other night that at its peak, it was doing 100 million tests a day. It was an incredible amount of work that this was doing. And it was all of that validation in behind it to make sure it was capturing the right data. Extraordinary. So, yeah, and, and I, think, I think where this flows in for us is what are we doing about having the right data? You know, governance evaluator, we, by my own terms, we try to be consistent, accurate and validate what we do. We understand our need. You know, where is our position in governance risk and what are we trying to achieve? We've built our programs and our support services in partnership with boards, directors, executives, government departments, industry peaks, expert leaders. This approach that we're taking here is not our best guess. We, we've put together a digital solution that doesn't sleep. This data is always available to everyone that's within the program. The transparency and awareness is there. You know, there's this peace of mind in evaluating. And we then go and create this comparable data. We, we anonymize all our data so that our GE crowd can then benchmark themselves, their boards against each other and say, okay, are we doing the best efforts we can? Are we doing the best things that we can in the way we do our processes? And what can we do to identify where we need to do better? So I think it's, it's really great covering off everything you need to do. Thank you. That, that's really interesting. I, I couldn't believe that example about that thing that comes up <laughs> and nearly drives us all insane. I can't believe that we've helped I've actually helped. <laughs> well, that's that's where you know, there's a great it's there's a great scene great scene that comes out of Google where if you're not paying for a product, 
you are the product. <laughs> I love it. Oh, it's so good. So we're going to move on to questions in a moment, but I'd just like to go back to each of you and just say, as we come to an end of our presentation, do you have a tip for us based on all of your experience and, and all of the work you've done with data and intuition and making great decisions? What might be a good tip for everybody to take home today before we go on to questions? Tegan, what about you? From my personal experience and my business experience, keep an open mind. That's my, my best tip. Normalise change. Don't be put off or hurt if, if your story has to change, except that, that technology moves on, data moves on, the world moves on, and embrace that. That's my advice. I think that's terrific. It's really lovely. Thank you. Ash, what about you? I think really the, the tip to take away is that data is more than just numbers on a page and you've got to accept all, all aspects of it and listen really to, to the story that it's trying to tell and understand that it is data points, but it's also more than that as well, mm. which I think is really important. Yes, yes. No, I think that's lovely. And Adrian? I, I think when working with data, I think, Initially, you always have to take that step back. Don't dive straight into a small detail because you'll end up making it fit your story. Mm. Take that step back. Look at the big picture. You've got to understand that context. Bring in transparency and awareness. You know, we, we owe it to ourselves, our organisations, and societal change that we need to make. Always take time to listen. I think that's very good. Thank you. And, and thank the three of you so much for talking to us today. I love your stories about data and how you brought that to life for all of us. So let's move on to our questions and let me have a look. We've actually been having an awful lot of comments that as we've been going through our presentation today. And one of the areas that you three all talked about that has really caused a lot of conversation is around that notion of the sum of all parts being greater than one and, and how there's that real value proposition that data brings to those conversations at the boardroom table by using that combined with intuition. So, Tegan, from your perspective, do you think that that is something that we really need to continue moving forward with boards? I mean, do you have experience yourself in with working with your board around the data? I mean, your board is looking at data all the time, but the actual functioning of the board has that? Yeah, so we use data to look at our board. So Opal's a not-for-profit company. They're doctors who contribute their data, members of the company. They all volunteer their time and their data. It's there purely to improve the lives of patients. It's a passion project. There's a lot of hearts invested, which means a lot of emotion. But we need to be really on the ball when it comes to ethics and privacy and our social responsibilities. But it's also a very high-tech operation, which is very expensive to run. So on our board, we need people who can understand the ethics of having human data and how the research outputs can influence the, the lives of patients, literally. So this is how we got involved with you, Fee. We needed to assess the skills of our board and make sure we were really on the ball when it came to these things. And by having data on each of our director's skills, we were able to remove that emotion part out of it, which is a huge part of Opal being a passion project. And I think what was really great about this experience was that Opal is a very, very unique company. 
And it's not a one size fits all assessment. And this is something we struggle with a lot when we speak to things like management consultants and things that like to just have a a pre-established model. So being able to actually look at the most important skills around ethics and research, and most importantly, an understanding of what patients need, because that ultimately drives the direction of this company. So by having each of the directors advocate for themselves, fill out their own self-assessment, we found out that we had a lot of very accomplished people on our board, but when we're having the discussions about which skills are we lacking, what do we need to recruit for in the future, it was so helpful to just remove the emotion out of it and let the data tell us what we needed to do, which was absolutely essential for something. I think that's a a really good example. And um, I've actually got another question here for all of you is unconscious bias with board data interpretation. Do we have any good examples? So Adrian, from any of your work or Ash or Tegan, do you have any examples of how conscious bias can really impact on the data, uh, particularly at a governance level? Well, I think from a completely different perspective, looking at other situations I've been in in the past, mm. working with different sets of data, it's always been very easy for the people involved in those situations in real estate, in just basic website data analytics to make that data fit your own story. So you go in with your own personal history of what you've, and, and there's nothing wrong with having that personal history. It is brilliant experience and it is what you base your intuition on. And there's definitely a balance that needs to be achieved. But you do have to look at, okay, what am I bringing to the picture? And I think this is essential in governance as well, where mm. you, know, you see all of these big boards getting into trouble because they've let things slide. You know, all the Royal Commissions that keep popping up because issues have occurred. You know, I think it's just, you've got to have that open mind. Yes. You don't know what you don't know. That's good. I have an example of actually bias around doing the assessments and it's actually my own bias. So I did the skills <laughs> assessment as well because I needed to know where I was lacking, where I needed um, more, more training and how I could hire new people to, to plug my gaps. And I found that when I was filling it out, I felt like I didn't, belong in a bit of a way like being a young female CEO that's not in my head what a CEO is so when I was sort of doing it I was really hard on myself and and downplaying my skills because of my own bias Mm. and it was really nice to have the chair of the board then call me up and say you marked yourself a bit hard here but we had the comments as well so intuitively he could then see where I was coming from when I filled this in as well. So I think that's something to keep in mind as well. I think uh, if you feel like you don't belong in that environment, you're probably going to be pretty hard on yourself. Exactly. No, I think that's very true, Ash. Have you got any examples of bias? Yeah, I suppose I speaking as sort of Tegan did, coming into the sort of field as a a young female, there's often personal biases that, you know, people have against you because you're young and you're female, so what could you possibly know? How could you possibly be an expert? That sort of thing. And from going through all of the the GE data, it's really interesting to see the biases that boards have against themselves as well. One Mm -hmm. thing that we've sort of 
come across as a bit of a phenomenon is the the three-year dip. So in, in the first year that boards evaluate, they usually get pretty good results. They're like, wow, we know everything. We're, we're doing pretty well. And then suddenly you see the second year, they've matured a bit, they've done a bit more, they've learned more about being on a board and, and their results sort of dip down because they realise that they don't know as much as they, they thought they did and they were sort of a bit biased towards themselves. And then suddenly in the third year, you can see that they have actually made improvement and they've learned more and their results look more like their first year's results, but are a bit more concrete because they've done the work and they actually understand what's being asked of them now. Mm, no, I think that's, that's really good. In fact, someone goes on and asks um, in the case study that was presented, did was the next level of validation, did they get any not mets in their accreditation? And... It's interesting. No, they didn't. And there, there is a real need to be able to start to say what happens at the top actually does drive what happens in the organisation. And if when we ask boards to measure themselves and they say that they do understand and they do have good oversight of risk and they do believe that the right things are in place, does that actually go down to the organisation and the organisation is managing risk better. In other words, if the board is right, asking the right questions and they say that the right questions at the top drives activity and what's measured and what's managed in the organisation, is that actually happening? And so in answer to that question, this case study, no, they didn't have any not mets. But it's a really good question and it's the next frontier of data, isn't it? From a governance level, what is the impact of how we look as a board on the culture and how we manage risk as an organisation? And as the person so rightfully said, that's an ongoing conversation and that's going to be another conversation that we'll all have. So I think we might end our conversation today on, that, on those really interesting questions and Tegan, thank you so much for your extraordinary insights. As lots of people have already written in and said, thank you for those stories. They were really interesting. Ash, thank you. You are the next generation of data and governance. And I'm so excited working with you. I can't wait to see more of what you bring to the table. And Adrian, thank you so much for your wisdom and uh, insight today and your stories were really much appreciated as well. So a few people have said today, which I think is a great idea, can we continue this conversation about data? I think people were so inspired, they want to keep talking about it. So in honour of the notion of crowd, crowdsourcing data, I think <laughs> we need to have crowd discussions about data. So we will definitely get back to everyone on that fantastic request and we look forward to seeing you all again soon in our next Governance Evaluator Insights webinar. Thank you very much. <laughs>